Christina from Gravel Trap F1 here, and I've got some big news. As you're well aware, Formula One is not the only open wheel racing out there. So, the Gravel Trap is expanding its repertoire into IndyCar with a new podcast called Gravel Trap Indy, hosted by myself and our newest member of the Gravel Trap family, Justin Reschke. That's right, Christina. If you're a longtime IndyCar fan or an F1 fan who's been curious about Indy but don't know enough about it yet, we're making a show for you. We'll be covering both current events, races, driver market news, as well as digging deep into the rich history of IndyCar to recount some of the most exciting stories ever to come out of the sport. Join us. It's going to be a blast. Look for Gravel Trap Indie wherever you get your podcasts. If you had to tell somebody what F1 silly season is, how would you describe it? It's a magical time when anything can happen. It's like the F1 Christmas, if you ask me. Welcome back to Gravel Trap F1. This week is going to be a little meta. At Monza this weekend, Yuki Tsunoda's breakdown during the formation lap prompted a delayed start. So we're going to make our formation lap all about starting procedures and the formation lap. In the Grand Prix segment, I have three stories that capture the Shakespearean history Monza has gifted the world of motorsport. At the checkered flag, Buck explores F1 silly season past and present. If you thought things were crazy right now, you gotta check out the 90s. Let's go. And then starting procedures will be okay. This is the difference. I'm figuring it out as I read. JK, I figured it out. She's a, she's externally processing. <laughs> yeah. So delayed start is when they decide, okay, we're not going to begin proceedings at all. We're going to start later. So that's the one that we typically see in the cases of weather. We've got everything pretty much ready to start, but then we look and we're like, eh, no, this is a bad idea. We're going to delay it. Aborted start is for any time they're in the middle of things and then they're like, okay, no, we're actually going to abort this start and try again. So that's if the formation lap has started. That's an aborted start. And then if they haven't started the formation lap, it's a delayed start. I like it. But before the formation lap, before we even get into that, you scroll back about an hour because starting procedures take a heck of a long time because it's typically us as viewers, we don't really pay attention to that or aren't super aware of it. The cars kind of just appear and then it's we're good to go. We start the race. If you're Someone like me, you don't even watch the race starting procedures. You can just turn the TV on five minutes before and then you're just like, wee. But the race starting procedure officially starts 50 minutes before the scheduled start of the formation lap. And so all of the cars, they get to leave, they get to go do reconnaissance laps, and then they have to drive through the pit lane in order to go and do another one, which is what sometimes can look funky because they do have to st shut down the start finish straight so they can get other things set up like the national anthem and whatever else they're using for that specific event. So that's why you see cars like slowly going through the pit lane, even though they're doing their reconnaissance laps. And then they go and they'll typically start lining up at the back of the grid. Their teams will meet them there and then they'll get jacked up and slid into position and they have a whole bunch of timelines like there's a 50 minute warning 42 40 and there's a whole bunch of different little steps that they have to follow but the more important one is what is the last time that a car can leave the pit lane and so that is 
42 minutes before the scheduled start of the formation lap, they get a warning signal that the pit lane will be closed in two minutes. So that's when they have to like book it, get out of there. The most recent one I remember is by Pierre Gasly at some point last year. He was like, oh my gosh, we need to get out. We need to get out and just got pushed out onto the main straight with like 30 seconds to spare. Yikes. That was one of the most tense things I have ever experienced. And at the end of the day, if they don't get out of the pit lane, it's not the end of the world. They can still start the race. They just have to do it from the pit lane. But that, of course, is a disadvantage, especially if you have a good starting position. Mm -hmm. And then once that two minutes is up, it's a 40 minute before the scheduled start of the formation lap, that pit lane will be closed. Uh, second warning is given, and yes, any car in the pit lane has to start from the pit lane, mm. provided it got there under its own power. That's the big thing. So many of these checks that we're going through in the starting procedures is just like, is your car working? When we go to start the race, are the cars going to be running? Because that's one of the dangerous things about standing starts is sometimes the cars stall out and don't run. We had an F2 crash last year or two years ago had one of the Fittipaldi brothers in it, I believe, who was going full speed and rammed into the back of a car that didn't start. You can get some pretty major accidents from the cars not starting, which is why you have all of these checks mm -hmm. and all of these different moments to be like, hey, make sure your car is working, make sure it's gonna start. And then we go into just a different countdown. They give you a 5, 10, 15, sorry, 10 minute, five minute, three minute, one minute and 15 seconds before the start of the formation lap. And those are also when warnings for like the teams to disperse away. The big thing is that when the five minute signal is shown, they have to have their wheels fitted, tire blankets be disconnected from power. And that is when the team personnel and equipment trolleys are gonna start leaving the grid. That giant exodus where it's like parting of the Red Sea. It's so satisfying to be watching all of the teams just clearing out of the grid. It happens so seamlessly. It itches a really specific part of my brain and it makes me very happy. <laughs> okay, so when you have these warnings coming into play, do you ever mm -hmm. have a warning that's like, okay, at 10 minutes, any non-team personnel have to go? Or is it just like everybody is subjected to the same one. I'm thinking of the headline where there was a celebrity that didn't get off the grass in time during the formation mm -hmm. lap or something. And they were like, this is probably going to result in people not being allowed to do the grid walk prior to the races anymore. Like that's something that's possibly in conversation. And so I'm like, would they consider doing okay, but at the 15 minute mark, you have to leave but only team personnel can there stay. There is that. Okay, okay. There is it, yes. Yes, that's the 10-minute signal is shown and everybody except drivers, officials, and team technical staff must leave the grid. And gotcha. teams also have a set number of people that they can have around their car at any one time. So it is very regulated. The part where it gets tricky with the celebrities is that teams know what they're supposed to be doing. They've had it drilled into them. They know exactly where they're supposed to be, what their job is. But with celebrities, they're dependent on whoever is guiding them to bring them off. Mm -hmm. And I believe that situation was where there was a slight failing of whoever was responsible of shepherding them. Yeah. Uh, kind of dropped the ball on that, which less than ideal. Certainly. And if we're wondering, like, the specific number of team personnel around each car, it is 16. Mm. When the three-minute signal is shown, no more than 16 
team personnel for each competitor are permitted on the grid. Does that count? That does not count the driver. I don't believe so. Okay. No. Interesting. But it is ambiguous language that I would love to get clarified. Yeah. Now, okay, the 10-minute rule, does that apply to media as well? It's everybody. So I'm thinking like Martin, you know, like when Martin is getting measured off, you know? The official wording is on the, let me go back to that specific, there it is. On the grid is the specific wording. So I would imagine that there are specific places where, yes, the media can go, but it's not on the grid itself. Okay. And now, as we all know, the green lights will be illuminated. The cars on the grid will get the formation lap going. And there are a number of rules about, you know, they are quite ambiguous in some cases, but they have to stay and use their pit lane speed limit until they pass pole position. So until they pass Ah. that first grid spot, they have to stay going slow. They're only allowed to overtake somebody if it's to regain the position they were already in. So for example, someone has a delayed start, whatever, they have to like be like, okay, go, go, go car. Something went wrong and they slipped down from their original sixth position to eighth. They're allowed to go and overtake the person who the two, one, two cars that are in the between them and their original spot. And then if for some reason they don't start, they just wave down the marshals and the marshals go and assist them. If they're able to get their car going again, they have to start from the pit lane as well in this case. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the big questions for people this weekend was, does this count as a red flag? Because we had essentially paused everything. But because the race hadn't started, it did not count as a red flag. It counted as a aborted start because, again, as previously mentioned, we had already done a formation lap, each of which counts towards the race total, which is why 51 laps was displayed and not 53 because mm-hmm. we don't have refueling. And then they are not allowed to change their tires. The only cases in which they're allowed to change their tires is if they're given explicit permission by the race director because oh we aborted the start because there's debris on track we know that some tires have been damaged whatever that may be okay question yes so let's say for instance this weekend yuki you know had an issue on the formation lap obviously everybody's getting radio messages like all right we're gonna like abort the lap or whatever when they start to pull back in are the personnel allowed to re-enter the grid to line their person up or is it on the driver to line themselves up at that point for the next formation lap? I would have really liked to know that. And I think this is why (laughs) commentators as well were very confused because there's no explicit thing in here that says, okay, this is what you can and, and cannot do. The biggest one that I can find is that competitors will be informed of the delay using the official messaging system. And because we know that the starting procedures will begin again at a five minute point during a certain set of the starting procedures, you're allowed to have team members on the grid. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, that's what makes it that, okay, yes, we're going back into the starting procedures. We're starting from this line. We're going to go ahead and go through that. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I'm just thinking through because I remember (laughs) earlier this season, it was a whole conversation of, oh, well, they weren't in the box. They weren't lined up correctly and it results Mm -hmm. in a penalty or whatever. And I'm like, well, when the teams are doing it for you, 
that's a lot easier, I'm sure, than when you're trying to line up your own car from the inside. I would want them to yes. line me up on the new formation lap, but I don't know if they're allowed to. So, Well, thanks for taking us through all of the formation lap specs. That's honestly, I wouldn't have known if you hadn't told me. Surprise. Italy has a beautiful rich history but specifically Monza I feel like has this history that's shaded in tragedy but also we revere it so highly that it's something that I'm going to do my best to give some history on it is not possible for me in this one episode to give you guys the full history of Monza but I'm going to hit you with kind of the big ones and then one of my favorite ones that I don't think is the biggest one but it's a personal favorite, purely because I'd love to see them do it again today. But the Autodromo Nazionale di Monza, I said Luma Italian, was completed in 1922 and was just the third permanent autodrome in the world at the time, which is why I feel like Italy has this beautiful, rich motorsport history, because the three were Brooklyn's in England, which everybody knows England has a deep motorsport history, Indianapolis in the U.S., America. And um, of course, Monza is the third. So the 1928 race, so fast forward six years, was the first of many tragedies that happened here. The Italians Emilio Matarassi in a Talbot and Giulio Foresti in a Bugatti were battling around that the quick circuit. It's always been fast, but in these days, safety was just kind of completely out there. Not kind of, it was just non-existent. So as they came off the banking onto the left side of the pit straight at 125 miles per hour, mind you, in 1928, which is pretty fast, the uh, one of the front wheels of the Maserati overtaking the Talbot touched one of the rear, rear, rear wheel of the Bugatti. Uh, Matarasi lost control of the car, swerved left, cleared a 15 foot wide and 10 foot deep ditch that I think was meant to kind of be a buffer between the race and the people, flew over it and plowed into the unprotected grandstand opposite of the pits, killing himself and 27 spectators and injuring another 26. Holy. It was the worst, yes. It was the worst accident in motor racing history and remained <laughs> so until the 1955 24 Hours of Le Mans, which we're not going to go into because this is an F1 podcast. But after that, the Italian Grand Prix went on a three-year hiatus, I think for obvious reasons. Even despite all of that, they still didn't really put a lot of safety stuff into play yet. Fast forward another five years after that, in 1933, tragedy struck again in Monza when three drivers were killed as a result of an oil patch on the south banking side. Remember those guys when there would be like an oil patch and it would almost be Mario Kart-esque and you would just slip and oh slide? Gosh. I know. These days we have all these safety precautions in place where something like that is taken care of so quickly. At the time, they were like, well, just try to avoid it if you can. My friend and I push Princess Peach into the oil spills like all the time. <laughs> it's like our go-to move. What do you have against Princess Peach? Okay, she keeps beating us, okay? Oh. Specifically Baby Peach, okay? Mm. This is Baby Mario and me, Baby Luigi, against Baby Princess Peach. It I is see, the Italians once again uniting against yeah. the blonde white girls. It's... <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you put it that way? <laughs> 
Anyways, anyways, in 1933, there was an oil patch on the South Banking side and the remaining drivers uh, met up as a result of these three drivers being killed. The remaining drivers met up, decided to keep racing under the condition that the oil patch was cleaned. Honestly, I'm a little disappointed that they even had to meet to decide, yes, we're going to clean it. Like, yeah, okay. Well, like- I feel like what? it should have just been understood that when three guys died, that you should definitely clean it up. So they cleaned it and then resumed. And a Polish aristocrat who was racing for a Bugatti at the time, completely unrelated to the oil patch, his engine blew up while he was driving and he was burned to death. Same race, same weekend. Oh my goodness. The day was known as the Black Day of 1933. And what's a turning point actually in Enzo Ferrari's career from what he was considering the carefree days of racing and the lighthearted mm-hmm. times into a harsher new age. And remember, prior to these events, safety wasn't something that was paramount because this was fun and joyful and lighthearted and everybody knew the risks. Even still today, everybody knows the risks. But after this they really started to take safety very seriously in Monza. So literally for the next 50 plus years, I mean, even still today, there were a ton of changes in Monza, a ton of redevelopments. It's not even going to be worth our time to go into them all because they changed so quickly and would go back to what was before and then change to this new thing and then maybe try the thing that we did two times ago. And it's just, it's a lot to keep track of. However, The Monza circuit has a long, rich history that deserves the respect of fans and drivers alike. And some winners at Monza that you might recognize include Michael Schumacher, Lewis Hamilton, who both hold the most wins at Monza, by the way. Both have had five. Nelson Piquet, Juan Manuel Fangio, Sebastian Vettel, Jackie Stewart, Nicky Lauda, Ayrton Senna, Damon Hill, Fernando Alonso, obviously Max Verstappen, and Alan Prost, among many others. But when you hear some of those names and you think, wow, they won at Monza, you, you think of all these great champions. So let's get to my favorite Monza story. <laughs> One of my very favorite Monza stories took place in 1957. They were then called the USAC cars, but they are now called Indy cars. So for the sake of this story... I'm going to call them IndyCars to the haters in the comments. I know that they were called USAC cars at the time, but for the sake of clarity, I'm going to call them IndyCars and we're all going to be okay with it. Great. They raced on ovals at the time solely. And since Monza in 1957 had a newly built oval, the Italians and the Americans decided to have a little competition to see who would win F1 or IndyCar. Did they have just a regular old 50-lap race? No, they did not. It was 500 miles long, divided into three heats that were about 63 laps each. So it was more of like an endurance style of racing that they were making these F1 and Indy cars do. Entertainment Great idea. (laughs) Yes. Entertainment (laughs) out the wazoo. So... At the time, in 1957, only two of the cars that entered were F1 cars, and 10 of them were Indy cars. There were a couple of others that actually were endurance cars that entered, which makes sense considering this is basically an endurance race. Um, But this was actually because the Formula One cars 
were so few and far between because they felt that with it being such a long race at Monza, it would be too dangerous. And honestly, I don't blame them considering what they know of Monza's history. So at the race in 1957, the Indy cars were successful and won, but it wasn't over. There was a rematch in 1958 when 12 Indy cars, we have two new Indy cars entering the mix, three Ferrari F1 cars to be specific, and two custom cars, which were made by F1 teams, but they were styling their own custom car for the sake of this race alone, which honestly is a really good idea considering the F1 cars aren't really built for endurance, but they wanted to kind of model and if you made an F1 car for an endurance race, what would it be? And two Jaguar D-type cars, which are those endurance cars. One of the Ferraris <laughs> actually qualified on pole, which is like, woohoo, another Ferrari on pole in Monza. We love to see it. <laughs> And it was a much closer race. However, the IndyCars still reigned supreme, and the event was then discontinued despite its popularity because they just didn't feel like it brought in enough money. However, it was apparently a really big moment for development and research for the F1 cars. And I, for one, would be really interested to see them do it again today. Maybe not at Monza, but I think it would be really cool to put them up against each other because... Mm -hmm. You have all this research. You have all this development. I do feel like they're closer in competitive range, if that makes sense. And you have a wide range of age of the drivers, too. I mean, I I don't know. I think it would be really cool to see them compete. And I would love to just see some of these drivers interact with each other as well. Yes. Like, <laughs> I'd love to see the reaction. Especially the ones that have raced in both. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I also think it would really be cool to see side by side F1 drivers and IndyCar drivers racing against each other because mm -hmm. there's all these questions with Colton Herta and some of these other IndyCar drivers of should they be worth, are they worth an F1 seed? Are they good enough for it? Have they had enough experience? Whatever. Yeah. I think that this would kind of settle the score, if you will. If the Olympics are listening, I know you guys are considering putting <laughs> motorsport in the Olympics. Might I pitch this? Because I think it'd be really cool. Anyway, that is a brief, mm. small history of the beauty and tragedy that is Monza. All right. So for today's checkered flag, we were planning to talk about silly season. And that should be evident by the shirt I'm wearing. I wanted to embody silly season as best I could. And for our listeners, you're not going to know what that means. So I'll put something on Instagram. As I was researching it, and I, I wanted to have like a little quiz show where I'd give you guys like real and fake silly season stories and see which Ooh. if you could tell which ones were real or fake. And I got derailed in my research because I found something from a few decades ago that stopped me in my tracks. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But first, I wanted to ask you, if you had to tell somebody what F1 silly season is, how would you describe it? I mean, it's a time of year when the news cycle is actually quiet, which is where all of the absolutely nonsensical stories have a chance to kind of gain more traction than they normally would. It's a magical time when anything can happen. It's like the F1 Christmas, if you ask me. It's when I feel like rumors run wild and then you find out there's actually some truth. 
to some of them, mm -hmm. but it's a game of figuring out which ones are true and which ones aren't. Case in point, Lance Stroll playing tennis. Oh, like, exactly. Oh, that, that's yeah. somebody no. taking a, 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 a short snippet of an interview and extrapolating 10 exactly. pages of, of yeah. uh, mythology behind it. So it turns out if you were to ask somebody 10 years ago, what is silly season? It comes down to, and I'll, I'll read a quote here. It's the time of the year where crazy rumors and speculation are thrown around and often take, but often taken quite seriously. It usually starts around mid-season because of the summer break. It's also a term associated with next season's upcoming driver lineup. And for decades, that's what it was. It was about the driver lineup, where the drivers are going to go for next year. And that's kind of where it sat. Mm -hmm. And we see that in recent history with Oscar Piastri's Alpine tweet and that whole hoopla last year with him and McLaren and Alpine, it's now morphed into what we see today where it's like any crazy rumor, stroll playing tennis and stuff like that. When I was looking into the past, it was very focused on the driver changes. Those were very important back then and there wasn't much that people really cared about outside of that. I think into the personal lives of drivers, I don't know if it was that big a factor in silly season. It was all about driver changes. The 1990s though, we saw something that was insane. I'll go through from 90 to 99. There were nine driver changes during the season, 15 off season, 91, 15 changes during the season, 14 off season changes. Oh my goodness. And then we get, we get to 1994. Now, 1994 is the year Senna passed away. Mm -hmm. It was probably the biggest event or you know, biggest moment that people are going to remember from 94 there were 24 driver changes during the season and nine off-season changes. Oh, my word. Was this yeah. pre the regulation that you could only have dri four drivers on your team during I'm, the I'm season? I'm not sure. I, I didn't uh, get that far down the rabbit hole. Uh, so I wanted to know more about 1994 and find out what was going on there. This is the heyday of Ross Braun working for teams, not for, you know, uh, for F1. Someone wrote an article at motorsportmagazine.com. And the title of the article was The Diary of Disaster. 1994 was the most, like, disastrous year for a lot of these teams. And it embodied a different kind of silly season than what we see today. So if anyone's going to go back and watch rewatch a whole season. I hear people do this sometimes. They go back and they'll go on the F1 TV app and re watch race by race. I do that. A, a, a previous <laughs> yeah. season. Yeah. I would go back, <laughs> back and watch 1994 because you're going to see 24 different drivers racing over the course of that season. And they had much less races. I, I don't. Which makes the driver's championship really difficult as well. Because it's kind of like a who's there the longest is kind of the one that's probably <laughs> going to win it, you know? <laughs> That's so true. It There were only 16 rounds that year. I'm going to put this article in the description of the podcast and let everybody go back and read it. You know, you, you have, I'll, I'll just highlight some of the, the, the events from that year. January, this is before the season even starts, Benetton poaches Max Verstappen's dad uh, for its test driver, just as McLaren is poised to sign him as a multi-year deal. Uh, by March, Jordy, Jordan's Eddie Irvine and Verstappen collide during the Brazilian Grand Prix. The Irishman is fined, that's Eddie Irvine, $10,000 and handed a one-race ban. April 6th, Irvine appeals that decision by the FIA. And the FIA responds by 
increasing his race ban to three races for the crash. So that's with why the they seven. needed a driver replacement because they needed somebody <laughs> to drive for three races. Right. Those are just a couple of the things that, that kicked off 1994. So I, I think comparing what we see today and some of the manufactured drama and stuff like that is vastly different than than where it used to be. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder, like, what would we prefer? I almost wonder <laughs> if it's a couple of things that have created less driver turnover, one of which is the invention of the super license. And so you have these penalty points that are put on the super license that you have to gather before you really get a race ban. They're not really just handing out race bans anymore. The other thing is the driver's contracts are longer than they've ever been. So you don't have organic openings as frequently anymore. And also the team's mentality have been so much more long-term in car development that that maybe has also created less driver turnover because they are, you know, they recognize, well, this year the car wasn't really our car. So it's not really the driver that's the problem. It's the car. So we're not going to get rid of the driver. We're going to make changes in the car. Case Mm -hmm. in point, Red Bull having Max Verstappen forever because they've been building a car for him. True. I'm so much more a fan of, I like rumors when they have some substance to them. Like, the Lance Stroll going and playing tennis thing filled me with so much just like anger because it no. was so <laughs> it was so easy. I'm sorry. It was so easy to verify. And hearing some people talk mm-hmm. about it, like there was actual meat to it and not just a, oh, haha, this is a funny thing to talk about. But some people taking it seriously was just like, did you not just Google? It's right there. Yeah. And no legit publication had talked about it. It was all just nonsensical tweets or videos of us being like oh yeah that would be ridiculous hilarious oh silly Mm. season and it came right at the end of silly season and it was almost kind of like a like a last stitch effort almost of nothing happened over silly season so let's just make something happen because really nothing really happened i mean it was so we all expected yes we all expected big shifts because otmar and alpine's announcement of like getting rid of Otmar midseason was right before the break. So we were like, oh, what a way to launch the break. And then it was just radio silent for three weeks. I do enjoy some good news cycle chaos. I do secretly enjoy waking up and seeing that the world has completely shifted under me. Like that is, (laughs) as much as I complain about it, I do enjoy waking up to news and just being like, oh my goodness. It, It invigorates me similarly to how a Red Bull does. But I do like when things actually have substance and when they can go somewhere. I feel like the drivers just need to step it up. Look over at IndyCar. Will Power was flipping off the bird to people. There are tweets about all-American grade-A beef. I feel like IndyCar needs to lead the way and show Formula One how it's done. The drivers, they need to, they need to spice it up, quite frankly. Get a bit more nonsensical with each other. I think it's directly proportional to the on-track competition Mm -hmm. because case in point we saw plenty of spice two years ago because there was plenty of on-track competition two years ago but now this year it's just been kind of like well i think it's also global popularity the bigger stage you're on the more measured you're going to be about stuff yeah and case in point in the same article i'm going to link for the listeners there's an interview in here called In the Hot Seat with Martin Brundle. Martin Brundle was a young and stupid when he beat Sterling Moss at just age 21. He's learned a lot since then. And this is a 
page by page interview. I'm going to read one question to you. He's asked, you famously came up against Dale Earnhardt and IROC. Did you ever consider having a stab at NASCAR? He says, I never got as far as talking to teams, but it did enter my head in some of my darker days in Formula One in 88 <laughs> and 90. Then in mid-91, I got the Benetton drive for 92, so it went away. But in IROC, I had a scary experience with Earnhardt. He frightened me too much. And Rusty Wallace binned me because I was about to win the championship. That has a, a, a little of spice. The rest of this article is, or it's just this interview. It, it it's very spicy, and I think that they were far less polished, you know, just twenty something years ago. Uh, actually, no, this is twenty, this is twenty five, thirty years ago. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the the bigger the stage, I think these brands and the amount of money that's involved. Yeah, like you used to see. Remember, it was uh, Vettel had that PR person that would follow him around. Yeah. They all have it. They all have their PR person whispering in their ear and listening and they dual record everything. So that's why you also see their press person will record things as interviewers do as well for that double assurance mm. of, well, I can also tell you what he said because uh, I have my own recording. You cannot misquote mm. him. Or edit something to make it sound like he said something else. We have the tapes. So, yes, that is, the, that is what I have for the checkered flag today is your look at um. silly season past and present thanks so much for listening we'll see you next time at gravel trap f1 bye Peace. that's literally all i needed listeners we want to hear from you Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at GravelTrapF1. Share your love for F1 with us.